But it's always a joy to be here at Grace Bible Church, and we're just very glad to have the privilege to come visit you all and worship with you. I think I said this last time, but it very much feels like a home away from home to, to visit you all and, and worship the Lord with you. So thank you for being welcoming and showing us hospitality. Um, back at Grace Jacksonville, the seminary students were doing a bit of a, um, a series on Wednesday nights. Um, and it was a series on the one another's. It's actually still going on. And um, everyone was assigned a different text uh, of Scripture to, um, to explain a one another of the church. Uh, the one another's of Scripture are important, and they're even commanded, right? Um, I want to open up this morning as we consider one of the one another's. I want to open up this morning with a question. I love this church, and I'm assuming that you do too, or else you wouldn't be here. So my question is this. If someone were to ask you what it is that you love about your church, what is the one driving characteristic that you cherish? What would you say? Would you say that I I love the music? Would you say that the, the preaching is solid? Would you say that your favorite thing about the church is that they have a really good potluck sometimes, or maybe the philosophy of ministry in general. Well, as I've studied this text over the past few weeks, a a well-known and beloved text, I have found that we are told what is to be preeminent, the preeminent driving characteristic of this church, the church in Jacksonville, every church. Grab your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Our text today will be verses 1 through the first statement of verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 8. Verses 1 through 8. I'll read it aloud. You can just follow along with me in your Bible. The Word of God says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. does not seek its own. is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. Thank you that you've left this text in our Bibles for us to learn from. Lord, as we consider it this morning, we pray that you would give us teachable hearts. Pray that you would mold and fashion and shape us more into the image of your perfect Son. Lord, it's in his name that we live and move and breathe and have our being. It is because of Christ that we are here. It is because you have redeemed us, you've forgiven us, and then adopted us as your children that we are here. As Pastor Brandon said, we have no reason to boast in and of ourselves. We didn't figure it out on our own. We didn't come to the right conclusions and do what needed to be done. No, Lord. You saved us while we were running from you. Transferred us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray that this morning would honor Him. We pray that you would be glorified 
be magnified in our hearts, Lord. Teach us to love. Teach us uh, to care for your church, even as you care for your church, Lord, uh, and that we would follow after you in that. I pray that this would um, be a, a morning where we would not be merely hearers who understand and agree with your word, but that we would be doers who put action to your word, Lord. Because we are the, the body of Christ, and we pray that it would magnify him. We thank you, and we love you in his name. Amen. Well, if you haven't pieced it together yet, the one another that I was assigned and that we're going to consider this morning is love one another. In some ways, as I said, this is the preeminent love one another, the preeminent one another. We're supposed to be spending ourselves serving one another, yes, and encouraging one another and uh, bearing with one another and stimulating one another. Yes, yes, amen, right? We, we must do those things. But all of these one another's must stem from a love for one another. So I'm pleased to spend this morning with you examining love from Scripture and holding up our lives to that standard to see just how we can be conformed to this kind of love. Our passage, 1 Corinthians 13, comes to us in a portion of Scripture that's actually all about spiritual gifts. Chapters 12 through 14 are a section uh, in 1 Corinthians. It's a portion of the letter in which Paul takes the time to instruct the Corinthian church in the, the use of spiritual gifts. See, the Corinthian, the Corinthian church was apparently a very gifted church in a lot of ways. However, they tended to use their gifts to benefit themselves. So in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul has to correctively remind them, quote, to each is given the, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He lists a few of the gifts, but his emphasis is that, hey, Corinth, you're supposed to be using the gifts that God has given you for the common good, not, not for your own good. And then in the rest of the chapter 12, he goes on to tell them that, listen, nobody's better than somebody else because of their specific manifestation of spiritual gifts. And that we need to work together to be a complete body and to build one another up in love as members of one another. But since, since Corinth was already exhibiting many spiritual gifts, he didn't take a lot of time explaining uh, exactly what the gifts were per se, because they would have known that, but Rather, he felt the need to warn them against using those gifts lovelessly. He lists some gifts, and they're great gifts. They're tremendously helpful gifts from the Lord. But, he says, quote, I'll show you a still more excellent way. And it's really this phrase, I'll show you a still more excellent way, the last verse of chapter 12, that introduces our text this morning. And then Paul goes on to explain in the next 13 verses how love is the preeminent gift of God when it comes to service amongst the body of Christ, the church. He explains how everything else compares as little to nothing in significance when compared to love. And he gives descriptions of a love, a true love from God. So for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at what boils down into two main sections, and we'll take them one at a time. Firstly, in verses 1 through 3, we're exposed to what I call the vain pursuit of life without love. The vain or empty pursuit of life without love, verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, we'll spend our time in verses 4 through 8, which I've called the fruitful evidences of a life filled with love. And I believe that's in your handout as well. In verse 1, we begin to see a grouping of conditional statements, a series of if-then statements. Verse 1, you'll see if this, and then verse 2 begins also with if this, and then verse 3, if this. And these conditional statements are setting the stage for us to show just how vain and empty a pursuit it is to live a life without love. And then afterwards, Paul describes the vanity after he describes the vanity of life without love, he describes a mark 
a life marked with love. A love that the Lord produces in and through His people. So let's look at that first conditional statement together in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. And we have to pause there before we move on. If we're going to benefit fully from his conditional statement, if we're going to understand the verdict of Paul's conditional statement, we have to understand the foundation of it. So let's consider that. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I think it's safe to assume we all know what it means to speak. So we'll move right on over to the tongues of men and of angels. What is that? The word tongues simply is a word for languages in Greek. There are many groups who have taken that term and sort of run away with it, um, but despite the baggage that is currently tied to the word tongues in our modern parlance, here in its biblical context, it really does just mean languages. In the same way that you might say, English is my mother tongue, to say uh, that it's the language I grew up speaking. And the hypothetical situation that Paul is concocting here is one in which he was not only able to speak in human tongues, but even angelic languages. You see, the, the Corinthians were very proud of their gifts, it seems. Paul noted them as, quote, not lacking in any gift, chapter 1, verse 7. And yet, by the time you read through 12 chapters that lead up to our text, you start to realize that these folks were just singing all over each other and using their gifts to pop themselves up. They're factious and divisive, and they're using their gifts to benefit themselves. And it seems that they were taking pride in their ability to speak in tongues, the God-given ability to speak in languages they had never studied before. So Paul says, by way of rebuke, really, that if, if I were able to speak not only in the tongues of men, but even the absurd, the tongues of angels, but had not love, do you know what that would make me? Verse 1, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. That is to say, nothing more than noise. If I'm excited about some hotshot spiritual ability to speak in some supernaturally gifted way, but I don't have a sense of love or affection for the people that I'm speaking to, if I don't have an interest in their good, if I don't esteem them and care about them, I'm just hot air. I'm just annoying noise if I don't care about them. A clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. Gongs and cymbals don't build up. They don't edify. All they do is make noise. So understand the, the point that uh, God is making through this text. Christian, when you and I are puffed up about what we can do, and when we begin to exercise our spiritual gifts without any intent to do good and love others, we are nothing more than annoying noise. If I begin to stand up here and, and try to make you think that I'm a good preacher, right? Or if you go to a Panera at 6 a.m. to meet with somebody so that they or somebody else would think that you know, you're a good discipler, then we are nothing more than noisemakers. We're not intent on doing the Lord's will and building those people up. John 13, 34-35 says, quote, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And just in case we thought that we could sort of wiggle our way out of this, Paul warns us right away with another hypothetical situation. The second conditional statement proves the point again that life without love really is a vain pursuit. Verse 2, And if I have prophecy, know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, Again, we have to understand the foundation 
the hypothesis before we reach the conclusion of the conditional statement. This gift of prophecy was active in those days. This prophecy is the gifted ability from God of inspired statements from God. This word does not necessarily uh, mean future-telling or uh, predictions, as we sometimes hear the, the word used that way sometimes, the prophecy. Uh, it sometimes can be used that way in context, but mostly this was a telling forth of what God had said to proclaim an inspired revelation. This was one of the most valuable gifts in the New Testament church as they were in those early formational days. And in fact, in just a few verses, chapter 14, verse 1 says, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. This was so important because before the New Testament had been completely finished, God was speaking to his church through these prophetic utterances. But God was still revealing in those days great mysteries, which had been um, hidden from eternity past. He was still teaching his church through the knowledge of him that he gave through those prophecies, which is why he goes on to say, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. In Paul's hypothetical situation that he's laying out to the Corinthians, his prophetic powers would have given him the ability to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And a, a mystery in the Bible is like a secret. A mystery too profound for human ingenuity. This isn't the kind of mystery that you can solve, like a Scooby-Doo mystery. The gang can get together and, and deduce what happened. These kinds of mysteries cannot be solved by deduction. A mystery in the Bible is something that you absolutely could not and would not know if God did not explicitly reveal it. Romans 11.25 is an example of one of these when it says that a previously untold mystery of God is that a partial hardening of the nation of Israel would take place until the fullness of Gentiles comes in, at which point Israel will be restored. Romans 11.25 Another never-foretold mystery of God is that marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. You guys know this one from Ephesians 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. As one of my professors says, if I was left alone on a desert island with nothing but Genesis and many years to read it, I never could have figured out that the two shall be joined together as one with speaking about Christ and the church unless my New Testament had told me. That, that's kind of what a mystery is. And so if you move back to our text, then can you imagine knowing all the mysteries? Every mystery, you're the guy or you're the gal. God has specifically made you the one who has all mysteries revealed directly to you. And not only that, but you have all the knowledge, it says. You have comprehension of, intellectual grasp of all things. So in this situation, not only do you know all the mysteries and the untold plans of God, you have entire comprehension and ability to understand and process and articulate everything clearly. And not only that, he doesn't stop there. If you have all faith to remove mountains. Paul, for the sake of argument, is saying, consider for a minute that I was the guy who had every mystery revealed to me, and I'm the guy who everyone goes to because I have all knowledge in all things and can understand it and explain it. And to top it all off, I'm also the guy who everyone sees as having the most incredible faith, so much so that I can remove mountains. That's a way of saying that your faith in, is uh, a trust in the Lord so perfected that not only could you be faithful in every ordinary circumstance, but even in the extraordinary, uh, miraculous. Uh, just a note on that. You don't need to buy a ticket, go fly out to the Rockies, and try to pray hard enough to move a mountain. The idea in this section that Paul is taking things that actually exist within the Christian community Things like prophecy, mysteries, knowledge, and faith. And in order to make them a hyperbolic statement, he adds modifiers to those gifts. 
Paul was delivering prophecies. We're reading one of them now. And he revealed mysteries to the church, like Ephesians 5 and Romans 11. And he had a great deal of knowledge delivered to him from the Lord. But here he says, if I had all knowledge and all mysteries, well, we know that Paul wasn't omniscient. Only God is. And so when he says here, if I had all faith so as to remove mountains, he's not saying that that's actually something uh, that a Christian should be able to do. He's simply using hyperbolic language to say, imagine that I were a guy who had absurd, unheard of amounts of faith. He's painting a picture here for you of a guy that you would spiritually respect. This guy would have been every expositor, every prophet, every miracle worker, all rolled up into one times ten. But this guy, impressive as he is, he says, if I had all that spiritual net worth, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I have spiritual abilities that make people in the world wow, rather even people in the church wow and respect and like me, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And did you catch that? He didn't say, I have all that cool stuff, but this one thing I still lack. He says, I am nothing at all. And he doesn't even say, I have nothing. That would kind of make more sense to us. That's how we think. I have this, I have this, I have this, but I don't have this, so I guess really I have nothing. He doesn't say that. He says, I am nothing. It's as if all the other things were puffing you up to think, you're really something. Maybe if I bring a good word to someone in a timely way, I'll think that I'm really something. Maybe if I exercise my service and others like it, maybe it will impress them. Or maybe it will impress God. And they will think that I'm really something. Maybe if I live in such a way that shows that I have much faith, I'll really be something. Friends, you could do that. I could do that. But if I don't love my neighbor and do it for their good and for their benefit, if if you don't love your neighbor and exercise your gifts for the good of your neighbor, you and I are nothing at all. Brothers and sisters, that's a really sobering thought to consider that the God who created you, who created the whole universe, left a a written, penned word for us. And in that word from Him, it says, if you do not have love, you are nothing. So do you love? Do you love God? Do you love His people whom He loves? Do you love His Son and embrace Him as your Savior? Do you love His church, His bride, when you serve here at this church, or when you use your gifts and abilities in the workplace, or at home, or amongst friends, do you do it because you love them and are trying to edify them and build them up? Do you desire to be around the church? Do you serve out of love? Or are you serving in order to be seen and to be thought well of? This temptation is a very common one, and so... We are great that God has left us this reminder in our Bibles. So examine yourselves with me this morning, friends. Uh, As I've studied this, uh, it has hurt in many places, so I just invite you to join the examination. And as you do, let's look to the third hypothetical that Paul concocts here. Verse 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but you do not have love. It profits me nothing. Jesus says, if I give away everything I have, I mean, if I give away everything, that is a huge sacrifice. And the implication here is that you did it for a noble cause, not just that you threw all your belongings into the heart of the sea, but you gave it to people who presented a need to you, and you held nothing back for yourself. That is to say, you could be at food drives every weekend, 
You could leave massive anonymous sums in the offering plate. And you could give everything that you have to someone who presents a need to you. But if you do not have love for that person motivated out of a love for their Lord, then you will not gain anything from your sacrifice. So God did not smile upon it. Remember Psalm 50. It rebukes Israel. Not because they were sacrificing to God or weren't sacrificing to God. He says they were abundantly sacrificing. The problem was he wanted their heart. He already owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. He already owns everything that you would sacrifice to him. God doesn't need your sacrifice, even your sacrificial giving. Do you know that? Do you believe that? What God wants is your heart. And we show that heart to Him through obedience. So don't stop giving. Don't stop sacrificially uh, obeying His Word. But the true offering is the heart of loyalty and love behind the act. And he emphasizes this point by saying, not only is giving all that you have away not enough, but even if you were to give away your most precious commodity, your own life, even if I surrender my body to be burned, he says. You know, in our modern world, we think we tend to think of uh, redemptive acts of sacrificial love as what kind of redeems a man, in a sense. When you watch a movie and there's a, uh, maybe a hero with a bad past and he ends up dying in the end to save some group of people, we would say something like, he was a good man after all. But you know, the, the Bible doesn't say that. Remember, the Bible says, no one is good. No, not one. Only 3.10. So if you were to be a sort of moral or even religious martyr, does that make you a good person? Or someone who has earned the respect and acceptance of God and men. Answer, verse 3. If I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Remember that love here does not mean some ooey, gooey, hallmark kind of love. Nor does it mean giving yourself up for someone who is perceived as a good person because of uh, some moralistic standard of honor. The Bible talks about that, too, uh, in Romans 5-7. It says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. That's the kind of heroic bravery that we see and hear about when somebody stands up to save people in a dire situation, even at the cost of their own life. Listen, that is brave, and, and that is a good thing. However, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says that ultimately this profits you nothing eternally if you have not love. Many of um, you are familiar with the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Many of you can uh, probably recite that to me if I ask. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is the produce, the fruit that only the Spirit can produce. The evidences of the Spirit of God dwelling in a regenerate believer. And what is number one on that list? The fruit of the Spirit is love, etc. Okay, so let's think about then what is not on that list. The fruit of the Spirit is giving away all of your belongings and being a bold martyr? No. And the sad fact is aesthetics, monks, world, works-based worldlings, many people have thought that way throughout all of human history. Will it gain them anything? Sadly, no. They've been deceived. The fruit of the Spirit is love, etc. What this section of Scripture teaches us is that life, even a religious, zealous religious life, without love is void and empty. I read it earlier. I'm going to read it again. Our Lord Jesus, God Himself in His earthly ministry, says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13. 
So examine your hearts with me this evening, friends. Are there things that I do motivated, are the things that I do motivated by a rooted and true love for God and overflowing into a love for His people, His blood-bought children? Ask yourself, am I trying to get into His good graces with my actions or to be highly esteemed by others or to feel better about myself, maybe? Or am I operating under a true inclination toward God out of thankfulness for His boundless loving kindness toward us in salvation? Do I love the people whom He loves? But all of this, Paul and God knows that inspecting our hearts can be tricky because, after all, it's deceitful above all things, desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. So God saw it to leave us with His discernment on the heart. He shows us that he, well, he shows us what it is that we can be looking for to help either affirm that our love is genuine and true and tested by the Lord, or if not, to confirm that our love is distorted or has perhaps been dropping from God's standard over time. So we're going to look together at what I've called the fruitful evidence of a life filled with love. And this, I remind you, it's from God. Why does God leave a list of descriptions of what love is, what love does, what love is not? So that we would beware counterfeit kind of love in our own hearts and, and then put on a true and virtuous love from God. It's so that we will align ourselves to the standard of God's love. And the descriptors that are laid out here in our verses uh, break up into three sections. Firstly, there's a list of what love is. What love is. And then it moves on to a, a pretty lengthy list of what love does not do. And then lastly, it finishes with a list of what love does do. What love is, what it does not do, and what it does do. And you'll see that pretty clearly as we read, so I'll just make note of it as we uh, move along through the list. Firstly, God provides descriptions of what love is. He says, love is patient. Love is patient. Here the word patience carries the sense of bearing up under provocation without complaint. Before bearing, you could say. Remember that this letter was written to the Corinthian church. This is a church that had the reputation of, well, complaint against one another, tribalism, lawsuits against one another. Again, they were using their abilities to puff themselves up rather than to build each other up. So bearing up under a provocation of the other members of this church without complaint would have been a tall order, an impossible order if it were not for the Spirit of God. And this love from God for God and for His people is fundamentally patient forbearing with one another. After all, did not God forbear with our many sins against Him? Did not God become flesh and die for those who are rejecting and despising Him actively? Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, don't you believe that? Shouldn't you do the same? Shouldn't you die to self for the sake of those whom your master died for? And not only that, verse 4, love is kind. The, the original Greek has this, this following word order. Love is patient, comma, kind is love. Maybe you've heard of a chiasm. Uh, it's, it's when a statement or a phrase or a section of writing begins and ends with the same word or phrase. But here, the phrase in the original is love is patient, kind is love. So you can see that it's meant to draw your attention to the center of the phrase. The two words pushed up against each other in the original, patient, kind. This is the banner statement of all of verses of 4 through 13 on the topic of love. Patient. Kind. This is, if in its essence, that love is in its essence these two things. We've talked a bit about patience, but what is kindness? 
This particular Greek word for kindness, interestingly, is only used once in the entire Bible, and it's right here in our verse. However, it was a common word in a first century um, world, and um, many, many of you uh, have heard perhaps of Clement of Rome, a famous first century Christian. He used this word in his well-known letter called First Clement. Uh, he actually wrote First Clement to the same exact church, uh, the Corinthian church, about 40 years after Paul wrote First Corinthians. And in his letter, he wrote this, Let us be kind to one another according to the compassion and sweetness of our maker. Now, Clement wasn't an apostle, and he was not writing Scripture. But it is interesting to see that somebody who knew an apostle would have understood this word explained by the sweetness and compassion of our maker. The root of the word means to cause no discomfort, to be easy, benevolent, smooth. So you know that you've spotted this kind of love when you see a church who not only bears up under the provocation of others, but who then causes no provocation themselves. The Christian, is that you? Are you doing your part to love in this congregation? Can you say that when people make waves that could potentially be a really sore spot for you, that you're able to bear up under their provocation and not dig in your heels and bite back? Can you say that you're going out of your way to show a gentle, loving compassion and sweetness of our Lord to your brothers and sisters? You know, I'm, I'm pleased to say that that's generally what I see uh, in this body of believers. As Becky and I have visited through the years a few times, I'm glad to report that this is overall the tenor of this church family, at least from what we can see and what we hear. But the, the question is, in, in light of 1 Corinthians 10:12, let us take heed lest we fall. Are we steadfast in this? Are we growing? Do you love the person that's next to you? Do you love the person that's hard to love, that you didn't sit next to? That's not all that there is to say about love. Starting partway through verse 4, we're going to run into a list of things that love does not do. And these uh, lists of things that, are, that love does not do are in the negative, um, but that's okay. That's, it's not a negative section. It's in the negative to be sort of like a test for love. So when we see this list of things that love does not do, it's kind of like uh, we're afforded the opportunity to check and test and see if we have a negative test result for God's love. The first on the list of things that love does not do Love is not jealous. It does not envy. This word can mean something positive at times or at times negative. Clearly, it's used positively when speaking of God as a jealous God. And that's positive because he's jealous for something that is his. And we see that all throughout the First Testament. It also can be used positively of Christians, like Paul when he told the Corinthians that he is jealous for them with a godly jealousy. Clearly, though, in our verse, it's meant in the negative sense. Love does not envy. It is not jealous. This would be to have negative feelings over another's achievements or success, success according to the standard Greek lexicon. With each of these descriptors, I'll, I'll say uh, of what love not is, the obvious question to ask then is whether or not you are exhibiting any of these signs of a negative test result for love. So ask yourself here, when others receive success or achievements, do I have negative feelings? Flip that question over, do I rejoice when others get what perhaps I wanted? Or if the truth be known, if I could, if it were possible, would I have traded places so that I got it and they didn't? Bring these things to the Lord. Confess them. Forsake them. Listen, I've had to be constantly doing that as I've studied this text. So let's do it together. What else is a sure indicator that our love is not truly what it ought to be? What else does love not do? 
It does not brag, verse 4. Or uh, literally, it, it is not boastful of itself. So here, love does not go around saying, look how loving I am. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man will call out his own loving kindness, but a faithful man who can find Remember again, our context of 1 Corinthians 13, this isn't a guy or a gal out there in the world, but that all unbelievers are prideful. This is speaking of prideful boasting in the church. This word has the idea of keeping praise up onto oneself. I've seen this in the world. Even scarier than that, I've, I've seen it in the church. And it's even scarier than that, because I've seen this in myself. Beloved, do you make sure that others know how hard you are serving? Do you make them know how badly you need a break? Do you compare your service to others? Do you like to know more than other people in the church? Are you the kind of person who, when someone greets you in the hallways, you make sure that they know just how faithful you've been this week? Listen, be glad and rejoice together when you have victory from the Lord in areas of sin in your life. When you have the grace to conquer um, long patterns, or when you lead others to a knowledge of Christ, yes, share those things. Praise the Lord. But do be very careful, because I've seen in my own life it can be very easy to let a praise the Lord report become a let's praise me report. So I invite you to join me in a fight of careful humility. We must steer clear of this negative test result for love. And then very, very similarly, love is not arrogant, verse 4. Uh, this word is often translated as puffed up. It means to have an exaggerated self-conception. If boasting is when you're trying to make others think more highly of you, then this arrogance, this puffed-up arrogance, it's thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. That's a vivid word, too. I mean, you can just think about it, to be puffed up. You get a sense for what it means in 1 Corinthians 8 when Paul says, mere knowledge puffs up, but love builds you, you get the idea that love builds you up with strength, that you're genuinely growing in the likeness of the Lord, but this arrogance, it just puffs up. It gives only the appearance of growth, but inside, only full of air. Weak and wobbly, and just couldn't stand up against the true hardships of the Christian life. It should be a sobering word. I confess, right, there's been many times when I've had to go to the Lord and confess that I have thought more highly of myself than I ought to. But we are just instruments in His hands, are we not? We are joyful and willing slaves of the Master who bought us. Why then do we seek to direct our gaze away from Him and then at ourselves? We pray that the Lord would help us to resolve ourselves to resolve ourselves to do otherwise while we consider another proof of false love. Verse five. Love does not act unbecomingly. Or your translation might simply say, Love is not rude. But the word in its fullest sense is to behave disgracefully or dishonorably or indecently. To behave in a way that elicits disgrace or that is shameless. This word goes way beyond getting grumpy at somebody because you've had a bad day, though it does include that. This word, in its highest sense, uh, remember, each member of the church is to be modeling the behavior of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then in the least sense, Paul says, don't behave rudely by anybody's standards. And I know that striving to become more like Christ is a lifelong Christian. And we're all working at that. But sometimes, it's something as simple as being rude, acting unbecomingly, that has the, the biggest effect, negative effect, on our Christian witness. I mean, have you ever realized that it, uh, 
how quickly rudeness can turn somebody away from listening to anything that you have to say, even the gospel itself. John 15, 18, and many other passages say that the world will hate us because we are Christians. And that's okay. You can trust the Lord with that. But they should not hate us because we are rude. That's on us. This section is contextually, remember, about the love of members for the church, for one another. So being rude to one another and acting unbecomingly toward one another or harsh, that is a direct violation of the love that Christ has shown us. So take time when you speak to one another. Choose a smooth, edifying, gracious word rather than a selfish, hasty word. Show preference for one another rather than a preference for yourself. That is what Christ did for you. Not only is love not rude, verse 5, it does not seek its own or does not seek for itself. If you have an ESV, the translator supplied the word way, uh, as in it does not insist on its own way, uh, which is good. But I just want you to see that the Greek, it just says, it does not seek its own. Period. Meaning that it does not seek its own anything. This could be that it does not seek its own happiness over the happiness of others. It could mean that it does not seek its own needs over the needs of others. And it's a broad statement. It includes both of those things and really much more. So, brother and sister, you and I are not to be fighting to get out ahead in this life. Nor are we to be looking out for numero uno, as they say. We're to be giving of ourselves to others. We are to be seeking the interests of others, not seeking our own interests. And man, I need to hear that, don't you? In a world where we're taught at all times to coddle ourselves and to show self-love and self-care, and we live in the, the age of the selfie, what about maybe the subtle church, church version then? When we want our church visit to go just the way we plan and we want to be comfortable and well-served instead of having the mindset of serving others and looking for those opportunities. And I'm guilty of that sometimes. And do you believe that the Lord has filled your every lack and that He will fulfill your every true need? Can't you and I then serve full force other people knowing that we don't need to funnel all of our efforts into self because God takes care of us. And I don't mean that you shouldn't eat, or you shouldn't wear comfortable shoes, or you shouldn't shave. By all means, take care of yourself in that sense. But when it comes to true care and nurture, are you more inclined to seek your own desires? Or do you die to self and seek the desires of other people? And see here, love also is not provoked, verse 5. That is to say, a, a loving person is not easily provoked. This is simple when you really consider what it means to be provoked or to be irritated. When you're provoked, you've reached the point where you no longer desire to bear under the words and actions of another person, and you've decided it's time for them to bear with you now. It would be great if they would submit to your will now. I'm provoked. This could be somebody who snaps at their children. This could be somebody who um, gets angry in traffic. Somebody who's just always looking for reasons to be angry. Who's always irritable. This person is a short-fused person. And this word goes back to portray the negative side of what love is. Remember the two things that love is in verse 4? Love is patient and kind. Since patience is to bear up under provocation of others, to be easily provoked then, it's an indicator of the absence of that love from above. Or at least the need to repent. And with the, just a nuanced similarity, Paul goes on to say that love does not take into account the wrong. Verse 5. Your translation might say, is not resentful. That's a really efficient way to put it in English. In Greek, it takes about four words to say it. Does not count or reckon a wrong. 
And that word count or take into account or reckon is an accounting term. It means to determine by mathematical process. So the loving person doesn't sit down in the tally card of their own heart and take off another offense when you sin against them. To use a really revealing term, this refers to somebody who's just plain unforgiving. Has this ever been you? I know there's been times when I'm driving along and I'm thinking about the day as I replay what happened and all of a sudden I find that I'm beginning to get resentful. I can think of perceived sins that have been committed against me according to what I think. And I get fussy in my heart. Or sometimes maybe you're formulating how you might approach a brother or sister in order to better help them see a certain sin in their life. And then all of a sudden you're kind of up to a really high tally of sins that you want to bring up to them. So we can wait and, and earnestly pray before, pre, uh, before approaching somebody about their sin. And, and maybe keep it a short list of things to work on. And remember to take the logs out of your eyes, right, before helping somebody with their eye splinter removal. If you're familiar with Matthew 7. Interestingly, though, another sense of this word could be to give careful thought to, to ponder, to let one's mind dwell on something. So when you're assessing the state of your Christian love, ask yourself, have I really been dwelling on some sin that I perceive that has been committed against me? Am I beginning to sue? Or like my Savior, am I willing to say, Father, forgive them, and then go on to forgive them yourself? Now, this last description of what love does not do comes in as a bit of a two-sided coin. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And this is an exposing verse for our hearts sometimes. Because it does not merely speak of our external actions, but it peers down into the recesses of our heart. What makes you rejoice? Do you rejoice at the things that the world rejoices in? How about when somebody gets away with something that's... Um, Admittedly impressive, but immoral. Or do you delight in immorality yourself? Plain and simple. Do you watch and allow yourself to be entertained by the things that would excite the depraved old man? Or do you delight in being holy and clean and pure in the light of our Lord? Do you get a rise out of being aggressive or manipulative? Or do you stand under the truth of God willingly and joyfully? What really, though, does this phrase rejoicing with the truth mean, after all? Let's glance at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul uses the same words, unrighteousness and truth, together there as well. And he tells, uh, when he's telling the Thessalonians about Jesus' destruction of the Antichrist in, in future days. We won't spend time discussing the Antichrist, but I just want you to see these two words. Here in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And here comes our two words here. In order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. It seems that this verse by our same author is stating that the relationship between truth and unrighteousness is one of belief. Again, all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. The one who takes pleasure or rejoices in unrighteousness are proving that they never believed the truth. And for those who believe the truth, they don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice with the truth. So, friend, what are you believing? This verse really does peer into our hearts. 
Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, either in partaking in it or in being stimulated when others partake in it. Instead, love rejoices because of believing the truth. And the truth is, we are awaiting our Lord, the Lord of glory. The truth is, He's coming to right every wrong and to redeem us from the curse and all of its effects. He who saved our soul from the eternal punishment that we deserve is coming again to take us into His own eternal presence. What do you believe? What do you rejoice in? What kind of people ought we to be then? And that question is further answered when we see the final description of what lo- of love and those who love. We saw what love is, patient and kind. We saw a, a very long list of what love does not do. And then lastly, we will find what love does. What kind of people ought we to be? Those who bear all things. Believe all things. Hope all things. Endure all things. So let's tap into some of these last descriptors. Verse 7. True love bears all things. And the best sense of this word is not merely to endure. Uh, we know that because he actually says endure in a, in a little bit. But this word takes on the sense of covering all things. To pass over all things without making mention of them. The uh, sort of prime biblical Greek lexicon calls this word in this verse, quote, throwing a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person, end quote. Love, love doesn't bring to light other people's faults and uglinesses of character and practice. It's true, Matthew 18 says that there is a time to go to a brother or a sister if they're in sin, and then it can be loving to do that But love isn't speaking that out. Love covers sin. Love bears long with other people's rough edges and untruth behaviors. Now, it doesn't give us license then to act unbecomingly and demand that other people cover our sin. Remember that love also does not act unbecomingly or rude. So we're sort of hemmed in from both sides here. And love also believes all things, verse 7. Now, this does not mean that Christians are supposed to be gullible. It does not mean that you believe everything that anyone has ever said. It does not mean that one has no discernment and shouldn't take measures to think about and consider a matter to see if it is true. No, as one commentator said, it's, it's more of a matter of when there's a doubtful case. One should, quote, prefer being too generous in his conclusion to suspecting another unjustly. So is that you? Are you quick to accuse someone's motive, or are you quick to believe that person until proven otherwise? And and this one can hurt. Too often I can accuse someone in my heart of breaking what I've perceived to be a, a rule or a standard. I've found that when... I can accuse someone in my heart um, if, when I'm thinking the worst of them rather than the best of them. Typically, I've not prayed to the Lord in that moment. I've not asked Him to help me to see myself and to see that person and to see the situation rightly and graciously. That's not love. That's arrogance. If they've been confirmed in a sin of some sort, it would be loving to, to show it to them if it's good for building them up. But if it's unconfirmed, it's not loving to bring that up. Believe all things that are undecided. And similarly, love hopes all things. Very similar in meaning to believing all things. The idea here is to look forward to something with the implication of confidence about something coming to pass. Uh, Paul's actually already modeled this kind of uh, hope for the Corinthian church in uh, Corinth and the opening statement of the letter he gave. Um, when he gives thanks to them, he says, quote, You are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
God is faithful, through whom you were called into the fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Paul didn't give up hope on the Corinthian church because he was confident about the Lord's plan to sustain them to the end. So believers in the room, when you look around at the life of another believer, do you believe that God will bring that person, that believer, to completion until the day of Christ? That is precisely what Philippians 1.6 promises. So we must believe it. Are you keen to never lose hope in a true believer? Or are you quick to write them off? Have confidence in the Lord's completion of the work that He starts and endure all things. Verse 7, love endures all things. This is a word that you probably all know very well. To endure is to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition. To stand one's ground, to hold out, to endure. And it's entirely, it's not entirely unlike the word that we saw before when it said love bears all things. In fact, a lot of commentators actually think that um, bears all things and endures all things are synonymous to highlight the fact that the believing and hoping in the middle takes place through the long ship, the long hardship of this life. And there really are a lot of hardships in this life, are there not? The Bible promises that all who desire to live godly in this present age will encounter persecution. We will need to enduringly love our brethren in the midst of that kind of trial. We're also told that we will be sinning against one another in different ways, and we will need to lovingly bear others' sin against us in that way. We'll be tempted to err on the side of ungraciousness with others, and we will need to be patient and kind with one another and bear and endure till the end. Speaking of, there's, there's one last description mentioned here. Our endurance and our bearing in this life will end. But verse 8, love never ends. Love never fails. It, it, it never falls. We won't be continuing into verse 8. Uh, I'll leave discussions on prophecy and tongues for uh, Pastor Brandon and let him tracking that for you. But the one thing to note here in our verse is that love remains forever. We are called to bear with one another and hope and believe all things and endure with one another. But one day, we will all be with the Lord and we will all share His fellowship, being made perfectly in His likeness. And the bearing and the enduring and the hoping and the future outcome will no longer be a part of the daily fabric of our lives. But we will love. Because God is love. 1 John 4, 7. And 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. This morning, we spent the past hour examining the vain pursuit of life without love and the fruitful evidence of a life filled with love. The question is, Christian, will you allow yourself to be allured into the vain pursuit of a selfish life? Or will you spend yourself in the service of Christ and therefore the people whom Christ himself died to serve? Commit yourself today to that before God and serve as He has condescended to serve us. Establish your steps in the ways that He has already set before us. Love one another, church family. That's what Christ did for you. That's what Christ did for us all. And that's what we ought to do for one another. Let's pray and ask for His help in that. Your Father, Lord, so grateful that in the midst of the darkness of our life before knowing you, that you would set your love on us. Father, 
we don't deserve it. We never did. Uh, and we can't pay you back for it. We thank you that Christ has redeemed us in full and paid our price, brought us before you as those whom he loves. And thank you, Lord, for the ability now by your Spirit to love the rest of your children, the Bride of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be mindful of our own heart's tendency to become ingrown, selfish, and inward. And we pray instead, Lord, that we would love and serve others, those whom you have put before us, that we would be kind to them and patient with them and endure and bear all things and hope and believe all things, Lord, that we would be diligent to confess and repent when we see any of these negative results for love, Lord. There will be times when we sin and we fall, but we thank you that Christ has perfectly loved in our place and that we can now get up and seek to serve you out of thankfulness for your um, perfect work. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you in Christ. Amen.